Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Jack Kufal, Chief Information Security Officer with Michigan Medicine. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Jack, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. All right. You want to start off by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role? Uh, sure. Uh, Michigan Medicine is uh, about a thousand bed hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting about it, in my opinion, is that it's an academic medical center. So it has a substantial um, uh, nation leading research facility and learning program attached to it. Uh, I'm the CISO of all three of those missions. And that means I have a very interesting job because mm -hmm. I have to keep the flexibility of the research environment, but the sustainability and the survivability of the hospitals and health centers. So it's a, it's a constant balancing act. Yeah. It's that open, you know, be open, but, but be secure. Uh, and we've seen that with a lot of uh, government regulation, you know, the reg there's regulations out there that require you not to have breaches and mm -hmm. all the bad things that happen if you do. And there's regulations. I require us not to have breaches as well, but yes, know, yeah, I'm sure. Work out. <laughs> so there's those regulations. And of course there's other regulations that require you to be open and share data mm -hmm. and send it here, there and everywhere. Uh, which is similar to what you're saying about having a research function. It's that be secure, but we need to share information to do our research. So you need to let us be open. Talk a little bit more about dealing with that. Uh, what's interesting uh, for our facility, and I think for our institution, and what's probably true for a lot of academic medical centers uh, throughout the nation and Canada, is our doctors, our also our faculty. Um, so at 8 a.m., they may be doing a procedure. Mm -hmm. At 8 p.m., they could be in their wet lab uh, doing discovery. So it is uh, interesting because we all have to adopt different roles and personas on behalf of the institution to figure out how to protect it, but also not just protect what its cybersecurity posture is or risk posture, but what it is more existentially, a free and open uh, academic environment. Uh, another metaphor that I use when describing academic medicine is, um, whereas a lot of hospitals or maybe a lot of critical infrastructures or even um, smaller companies, they look at their data uh, and in order to protect it, they take more of a castle, drawbridge and moat, uh, higher walls, more bars, hide the data, don't let anybody in. Whereas an academic medical center, uh, we're a little bit more like an airport. Our job is data movement. We have to get the data that we create, that we ingest, that we, uh, um, yeah, we curate and get it to where it can do the most good. A lot of times that's within the University of Michigan. A lot of times it's outside the physical borders of University of Michigan. So as CISO and Academic Medical Center, you become very uh, attuned very quickly to data in motion and ethical and appropriate use of data because that factors in greatly into what is and is not reasonable when it comes to a security control decision. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, when we talk about, you know, every organization is going to have a different sort of risk level that it's willing to accept, right? I mean, that's just you're going to decide what, what level of risk are we comfortable with? It's the CISO's job, from what I understand, to express the level of risk the organization currently has to the decision makers. Here's what we're talking. Here's what we have from a risk level are you okay with this? Are you here the implications of this, right? That's your job to explain that, but not to make the decision as to what that acceptance level will be. Is that correct? Uh, very often. 
uh, there's a couple um, questions I use because I would imagine like most organizations, um, we have uh, large degrees of decentralization, decentralization of authority, of decision making. Um, There certainly is a hierarchy. There certainly is a, a structure. But it's so broad and such a diverse organization that you have to be able to find where decisions are being made uh, and hold a mirror up to the institution and say, here's how I see it from my point of view. Does that work with what you perceive uh, as where we need to be? So usually I approach a leader uh, that uh, I uh, is compelled to, to make a, a risk decision in, in this case uh, with three questions. Um, are we informed? about what this risk is. Do we have good understanding of where it is in the sector, what the definitions and scope and concept of that risk are and how it applies to us? Because every risk that's in the sector isn't necessarily a risk that we have. We have to understand a risk and apply it. Is The second question is, is what we're trying to modify reasonable? Is it reasonable for an academic medical center? Is it reasonable for a hospital? Is it reasonable for, reasonable for a dermatology clinic or a classroom or whatever the context is? Is it reasonable? And that's where a good piece of discussion happens. And then the last one is because we live in a world of exceptions and we simply can't plan for every permutation of outcome. How are we going to handle exceptions? Uh, so those three questions really help me get to the root of, uh, is this risk acceptable? Because that question is really difficult because it's there's no true motivation for a leader to um not push risk as far as far away from mm-hmm. um, themselves as possible but you need to have an informed discussion so just asking is this okay in a yes no sort of a way in a binary sort of way doesn't actually tell you a lot about your risk appetite you have to peel it back a little bit make sure we understand it make sure we understand it in our context is the change could be technical, could behave, be behavioral change, reasonable. And then what do we do with those exceptions, those things we didn't account for? Uh, that has helped us move decisions along a little bit more expeditiously than prior tactics. I mean, let's take a scenario or two, right? So let's let's play with one. A typical one, and you tell me, might be um, a department leader, a clinician, uh, someone saying, um, we want to bring in a new application. You know, I learned about this new application, which is so cool, and it does all this awesome stuff. Well, I want to bring it in. Well, okay, Jack, you've done enough work at the health system that they know, all right, we got to bring in IT, and IT is going to bring in IT security, or we have to bring in IT and IT security, however it works. Eventually, Jack's going to get involved because mm-hmm. we want to bring in a new application, and he needs to take a look at it. Uh, is that how it might work? And then take me from there through the scenario of how that plays out, and ultimately, that conversation that I think you may include those three questions that you mentioned. Right. Right. Eventually the three questions come up with that conversation with the business leader regarding you, you've taken a look at the app and now you're going to have a conversation with them about your findings and the possible risk implications of actually bringing this app on. Sure. Um, Very common scenario um, from all three missions uh, that, that, that we work with. There's a new capability that, a group or an individual would would like to um, have activated or bring into the fold or even just investigate. Um, and how do we get that done? How do we get a thing done in an increasingly restrictive environment that is increasingly at risk? You know, 10 years ago, this was no big deal. Uh, bring in an application, find a server or, you know, uh, something under your desk, uh, 
try it out, get it moving. Uh, and if it works and if it solves the problem and it didn't cause any ruffles, no problem. Now the overburden of all the security of all the process uh, is exposing uh, a lot more. So we're tilling up that soil and we're finding more every day. Uh, so it is very often that if people aren't coming to security proactively, we're um, flipping over enough rocks uh, that we tend to run across it somewhere in the process. So the first thing is to assume that we're not catching it early, right? At the point of ideation. Hey, I've been thinking about doing X, Y, and Z, a couple different applications. How do I make that secure? We're almost always um, uh, interacting, in this case, with the clinician um, with, with some sense of urgency. They're trying to get something up and running. Uh, she already feels maybe she's behind or there's a burning burning platform or a burning reason to get this application up and running. And oh, good, here comes security. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, 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 the first question is not really what's the security of this application, but it is, is what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, understand what's being trying to accomplish, regardless of the application, um, and have a shared outlook and a shared empathy with that clinician trying to be successful, because it is not the easiest for an individual to be successful in an academic medical center. There's all sorts of things that um, that, that come to bear that 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 present themselves as that are perceived as barriers. Uh, so just jumping in that foxhole with them and saying, "Well, what are you trying to accomplish?" Because I don't know probably don't know you, probably don't know your science, probably don't know the care you're trying to deliver, don't know this application, don't know any of the parameters. Start there, have the conversation. After that, um, a lot of assumptions are then dispelled on both sides of the equation. Um, is, what's the type, back to the data, what's the type of data that this application is going to be interacting with? It's the key important question. If it's high-risk data, if it's low-risk data, you know, regulated data versus uh, unidentified data. A lot of times, there's an assumption that they have to use um, uh, fully loaded PHI, um, but a lot of times you don't. A lot of times you can reduce that risk. You can work with data stewards. You can de-identify those data type questions. When you start getting into the application, there are processes to um that the application uh, make sure that the paper program for the application that is the contract the procurement doesn't have the right terms and conditions uh we do third party risk management assessments at a couple of different scales if it's a small job we do a small investigation if it's a big high risk thing we do a more rigorous investigation so again that conversation is about right sizing our risk tools our risk investigation to the size of the size of the risk, so a, a, a quantitative risk analysis as opposed to a one size fits all risk analysis. Um, a lot of times in that sharing that same foxhole, you end up also carrying water for helping to get the IT thing done as well. Yeah. You try to have a separation of duty between security and IT. The truth is, it's very overlapped, uh, and just the nature of our work means we know a lot of people in IT. And we know how to get a thing done. So a lot of times we help get the thing done in our processes uh, because IT itself can be very complex uh, with many different priorities, with many different teams. And it's sometimes challenging for that smaller voice to, to get a thing done. After it's up and running, we go into uh, keeping an eye on it mode. Um, and we have some third-party risk management systems that uh, help with that. Uh, but generally speaking, once we get over the risk analysis and we understand what we're dealing with, we can slot it into one of about four categories of risk. 
um, and treat it accordingly. The most so that, um, difficult thing is when we get that wrong and we apply the wrong risk rigor to the wrong risk type. We either underdo it or re- typically really, really overdo it. Then you're frustrating the physician. You're frustrating probably the third party. You're wasting IT and information security time. You're damaging your brand as a trusted service provider within the organization. Uh, so really getting that risk analysis um, close to right as early as possible seems to be the real trick to engagement to get, uh, in this case, a new application up and running. So the risk analysis is going to determine the vetting level. Uh, and ideally. You said, yeah, ideally. And you said getting that wrong is a big mistake uh, because uh, of what you said. You're either going to way overdo it and slow the whole thing down unnecessarily. What right. would cause it? Now, this is when it's in your lap. So when it's in your lap and you're doing that risk analysis, what are some of the reasons that can get go wrong and, and come out with the wrong result? Sure. Uh, the first is, um, and 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 no, it's a little pithy, uh, but uh, security professionals generally come in two flavors, um, more of the auditor mentality. Uh, so uh, in our sector, there's a lot of compliance auditors or a lot of security auditors. So uh, um, find a framework, find a checklist, run the checklist. Now you've got an audit. The other half is engineers. Um, and engineers, uh, they're MacGyvers, right? They can make anything work. What isn't necessarily in there is um, uh, uh, more of a relationship management sort of, sort of role or somebody who can talk to humans uh, or can understand the physician, the personas, the physician, the researcher, the nurse, uh, the dietitian, the, 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 the whatever the role may be. Um, and right there, you you lose a lot. So the best way to be effective in that is with your security team is at every possible opportunity, get them to understand more about those personas and more about those missions, not through a ticketing interface, but by sitting down and talking with these folks at every possible chance. There's some orientation type work, uh, but that's one of those key areas where if the security practitioner that's that front line to doing that risk analysis doesn't know the context of a basic science researcher versus a, um, a, a a clinical researcher and some of those dynamics that are involved there, you've already got one hand tied behind your back. Um, the next one that is really a marker is the uh, I'll say it I'll say it the um, the quality of the third party. So w- tell me a little bit about this application and where it's coming from. Is it the proverbial two people in a garage coding? Uh, is it a massive megacore? If it's a massive megacore, is this something, is this their bread and butter or is it an acquisition that mm. they've, you know, so the nature of that application tells us a little bit about the confidence we have in that third party and how willing they are to engage with us. And we see a full spectrum of vendors that uh, want to partner with us uh, from a security point of view um, and understand that's a significant part of their role either contractually obliged or reputationally obliged, um, and the complete opposite, which is once you've given me uh, the the licensing fee, good luck, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so those two factors really um, are the are the are the nature of it. What are those? Co- what's the context of the of of the work? Uh, in our in our case, we have at least those three missions, but many many nuances between them. Um, and even in just a um, conventional hospital. How a cardiac surgeon or cardiac surgical department acts is going to be categorically different from the personas you fall into with, say, 
dermatology outpatient clinic and clinician. So even in those uh, missions, there's um, uh, phenotypes uh, of of groups you're working with that if you don't understand just five or 6% of that context, you're probably... um, you're probably uh, heading into a, a wasteful situation. And the nature of information security is we're going to be risk adverse, which means yeah. it's unlikely we're going to underdo it. Yeah. If we don't have context, we're most likely, and I would say like 95% likely to way overdo it. That's uh, that's really interesting. Um, you know, it, it, and when I try and think overall big picture, um, what you need to do to be successful as a CISO in an entity like yours you know, you talk about turning over rocks, mm-hmm. right? So ideally, you're not turning over rocks. Ideally, it's coming to you, but we know that's not always the case. You want to do everything you can to make sure you're notified in a more formal fashion that there's a process and that when these things start to get into someone's head, they know that, okay, here's the next step. Here's what you want to do. You need to bring in IT. Maybe IT is then going to bring in IT security. Um, or whichever way you said a lot of times IT security might get in first. And then you don't just say, well, you got to go talk to IT. You take that relationship angle of saying, well, I'm going to help you with that. Since I'm here, I'm going to help you actually, you know, get this thing implemented. I can liaise with IT. I'm not going to make you, you know, very cold, like say, hey, well, you got to call IT and then call us back. Right. So optimally. Right. 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 So you're, you're, you're taking that relationship angle. You want to have the right folks on the ground doing those assessments so you get those right. You don't want them all coming in as fours if it's one to four with four, the strictest review. And and one of the things I was wondering is if you are seeing fours, do you take a look at it? Is that how you're finding that sometimes it was overdone, that you sort of do an internal informal audit and say, okay, we got four fours. I'm getting a lot of complaints. Let me take a look at these. And then when you take a look, you say, Oh, some of these should have been threes and this one should have been a two. Is that kind of how it's going down there? Uh, that's the the page we're trying to turn now um, is, is really move not just into that proactive quantitative analysis um, philosophy, um, uh, but also because we work in uh, a life cycle, right? We assess something and uh, all things being equal, let's say everything's healthy. We're going to assess it again in a period of time for the for the higher risk items. Right. Hopefully, at that point, we're learning. So, a great example is almost all, almost all healthcare institutions of of, of any size uh, that have the resources use um, a pretty robust risk cybersecurity risk assessment standard from NIST mm-hmm. uh, called eight hundred fifty three. Just went to revision five not not too recently, and that puppy is mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure close to 400 questions, right? Right around that marker. Um, and all those questions are important to an auditor. Uh, and all those questions are important in the in the detail and nuance. There isn't necessarily time for every risk to be asked 400 questions, most of which are highly technical that nobody really knows the answer to. So it's not <laughs> just asking the question. It's finding the person that might have the answer to the question. Um, and because a lot of times you're asking questions of engineers, software engineers, storage engineers, technical engineers, or quite literally some of the smartest people you ever run across, uh, which that's what I tell my folks a lot during onboarding is um, most rooms are going to be full of 
geniuses, right? The University of Michigan attracts and grows incredibly smart researchers. That's why they're here. Um, so, and your job is to go in and telling they're clicking on their email wrong. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, getting to those answers is a really protracted sort of involvement. So we had some incredibly uh, talented people um, and one person in particular, who I'd give a shout out to, Jessica Kelly, uh, who's on our team, uh, on our cybersecurity risk management team, was able to digest those questions down to the most meaningful 30 or so. Wow. Um, and cross mapping that in a legitimate mm-hmm. way. So we're asking the base questions and then digging deeper as we need to. Now, we didn't always do that, mm-hmm. right? So that's an example of that optimization that I think a lot of companies and institutions are shifting to. Uh, because the job isn't just secure those high risk items uh, or to retune and switch it. Well, does it re- is it really a four? Or is it really should be a two? It's to also adjust your means of analyzing that. So when it comes around again in its cycle, you are giving it a chance to be more accurately processed. And then sitting down and doing uh, continual process improvement and analysis about the highest and best use of your time. Because it's not just protect that application. It's we need to have visibility on a very broad risk landscape. Uh, so if we do one thing really, really well, but we miss 50 things, we're not doing our job at all. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to have tools that scale across that landscape and tell us where to deep dive and tell us where to back off. And that makes us nervous because inevitably we're going to miss things. Inevitably, we're going to apply the wrong risk assessment to the wrong risk type. Uh, the more variation we have in our, our tool set but we'll see more. And we have an operating principle that um, a known risk is better than an unknown risk. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean we can treat all risks. Right. Uh, so we have to continually improve our processes to account for that philosophy and those principles. Yeah. Would you say that that in general, you're looking to reduce risk without stopping business and that you, the red flags, the, the this has to stop for now, like something has to stop. A process has to stop. That's got to be very rare. Otherwise, it's maybe we have to slow it a little bit. We are going to reduce risk in the following ways. But you do occasionally, I would imagine, have to stop something. Rarely, maybe, but you do. Yeah. um, And stopping something is just about the most outrageous thing you can do in an academic medical center um, because it's so hard to get things going. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I usually say um, the hardest thing at Michigan Medicine is building momentum, mm. um, except stopping something that's already got momentum. Right. Uh, so it's once something's in motion, there's a compelling interest to keep it in motion because there's a respect for how hard it is, to, it, at least in IT, uh, to get a thing done. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And so there is there are there are authorities there are enumerated authorities at, at our institution for what I can stop and when I can stop it but that is a pretty big red button. Um so our primary goal um I don't necessarily look at it as keep the business running. Um because that feels like it does a disservice to um the healthcare sector as a, as a, as a part of critical infrastructure. I look at it more as a how do I preserve availability of those mm-hmm. healthcare services? Um, the last thing I want to do is make a healthcare service unavailable. Um, I'm not a physician. Um, uh, I don't know how important that ultrasound machine that's connected to the wall in the ED is. I don't know if that's the only one. 
I don't know if that's used for immediate diagnostic for every pre-cardiac patient that comes in there, or if it's a convenience. Um, years ago, it became very popular for, um, there, there are a couple of really snazzy device manufacturers that create um, pocket ultrasounds that basically plug into your mobile phone. You do a very quick, not high fidelity, but very quick diagnostic um, uh, image and really cool technology, really great hardware, real good attractive price point, very easy to learn to use. ED docs in particular uh, loved it. Uh, however, um, the applications were a little shy on the security controls, we'll say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but again, learning the context of how those things are used, understanding how the data flows, and knowing if you're going to affect that situation, the 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 um, the value of having those reasonably, at that point, risky devices, as I was perceiving as risky devices, mm -hmm. uh, in the environment, in an uncontrolled way, um, there was the ability to say, absolutely not, we won't allow those connect. Going back to that first step, understanding the context, understanding the use, um, and understanding the benefit is key because it was obvious to me, a non-physician, these were a quality of care tool. They were a quality of life improvement for the docs because if if they don't have these, uh, my understanding was a lot of times they have to wait for the ultrasound to become available, which slows down diagnostic, which slows down patient care, which adds costs when you might just need a very... Uh, lower fidelity um, scan to confirm um, your 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 um, your your initial diagnosis, initial diagnosis or your initial triage. So the value was clinically very very high, and it was only really by working with our um, we have a very great structure of associate CMIOs that work in our office of clinical informatics. Uh, so we have a CMIO, and then we have. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but maybe about 15 or so associate CMIOs who are in the specialties, who you and we have one for emergency medicine to go to and say, help me understand. And they do. And that that's one of those key elements that has been very successful for us. So if I didn't have those resources, if I didn't know those partnerships, and if I didn't have that context, I feel I would be more apt to disrupt clinical care and the research environment or educational um, effectiveness than I do right now. Um, so that would be my advice to other CISOs is there are, you know, it's like Mr. Rogers says, look for the helpers. There are lots of helpers out there that want to um, explain why something is important or why something might be of um, uh, of urgency. Uh, and if I approached it just from a got to fill out my form sort of way, so don't get me wrong, there's a healthy, there's a healthy portion of you got to fill out my form. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that that way of approaching um, a little bit more empathetically, a little bit more dynamically, um, you don't really get to be a healthcare CISO. You're just a CISO. Um, to be a healthcare CISO, you got to learn part of that context and part of that mission driven. And that helps maintain availability. The more you know, the more you can tune, the more you can advocate. And very, very rarely are we in the position of really um, terminating a connection or outlawing an application. It does occur. For the vast variety of tools and devices and uses and third parties and collaborations, surprisingly rare. Help help me understand the dynamic. I, I you make a great point. I understand what you're saying about uh, as a CISO, it's very un, in healthcare, probably any business you're in, it's very important to understand the context and it helps you understand the importance, the criticality of the device, uh, or whatever it is, and things like that. But 
explain to me a little more the dynamic of who makes the final call. From what I had understood, yeah. it was generally CISOs expressing the level of risk to the business owner, the clinical, whoever that may be, someone else, and saying, here's the level of risk. Maybe there's a recommendation that goes with that. I think this risk level is too high yeah. for this organization. Who And it may vary in different scenarios, but um, when are you, if ever, making the final call of, no, you can't use that? And when is it the business owner who you've expressed the risk level to, documented it completely? So you say, hey, this is what you're accepting. And they say, I'll take it because I know how important this is to what I do. How does how does yeah. that work? Um, perspective is really important. Um, and if you were to chop up my world into two buckets, there are threats, things that are actively going on at our institution, against our institution, within our institution, that are putting our institution at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, active packets, uh, active uh, uh, malicious actors, active insider threats. Those are threats. With those, um, and those are certainly a minority of what we deal with, um, there is uh, a reasonable expectation that I have to first address those threats and then deal with the recovery, whatever that recovery may be. So in a threatening situation, um, it is triage and respond to the threat appropriately to um, uh, preserve um the, the availability uh, of the institution or the reputation of the institution or or uh, the digital systems of the institution. So so there, I would say the CISO is quite empowered. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, um, in our organization, because we do run a reasonably large security shop, there are key roles inside my organization that don't even need to wait for me. We have established playbooks that we vet, that we, we practice, that we continually uh, uh, um, manage to help um, scope and limit wherever that threat may be. Mm-hmm. A large part of the organization uh, in that other bucket that I talked about if my world is a two bucket is vulnerabilities, which is a really squishy, <laughs> ambiguous term. You have digital mm-hmm. vulnerabilities and financial vulnerabilities and technical vulnerabilities and short-term and long-term sort of thing. So in there, uh, we worked with our, at our institution, we happen to have a CEO and Dean. So our academic, our academy and our our uh, corporation are are joined in a single role. So we have the benefit of having a penultimate leader uh, for, for an academic medical center. But I can't take every risk to that office, every mm-hmm. vulnerability to that office. So early on, we made the assumption and we worked with him uh, to make a risk delineation. So we can't just say these are all Michigan medicine risks, deal with them. There has to be some logical grouping of these risks. Um, and we broke it down, we call it our risk delineation framework, into seven major risk types. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, those seven major risk types had logical proxies for the dean to um, empower to be those penultimate decision makers. For example, we have a risk type that is around research productivity. We have a chief scientific officer, um, and he can delegate to a cadre of the chief scientific officer and um, his his chief of staff and 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 uh, the uh, uh, associate dean of research IT that at some point in our vetting of how important is this risk, they can be the penultimate decision makers. Underneath that, uh, there's a series of levels where the risk comes in, uh, and we use a framework called the four T's. 
Um, every risk we want to either ideally treat, right? Mm-hmm. How do you fix this risk? Um, we talked about disruption. Do we terminate that risk? Do we unplug it? Do we not allow the packets to flow? Do we cancel a contract? Transfer a risk, which in risk risk management terms, that's where you actually preserve a functionality, but you transfer the risk to a separate entity. That rarely happens. It's happened in my last five or six years twice where we're uh, actually saying, well, that that risk is actually somebody else's, but we still benefit from the functionality. And then the last one is really what you're asking about here, risk toleration. So those four T's, treat, transfer, terminate, and toleration. So we have a fairly robust um, process around a risk coming in, let's say um, Windows 7. Lots of stuff in an academic medical center is, runs on Windows 7. You try to get rid of it. You get down to this thimble full of Windows 7 machines that you're going to have to make a decision around. Maintain that functionality, um, have compensating controls, or remove it. So if the the risk toleration comes in. Let's say it's not for something um, um, easy to shut off. Let's say it's for a radiology system, because mm-hmm. right? radiology is complex and there's all sorts of of, of purpose and costs and 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 and, and market drivers there. Um, my team helps assess the technical cybersecurity risk, passes it up to a peer group of other technical people, not security practitioners, but people from the IT community to take a look at it. Say, oh, is that reasonable or not? I have my proxy, which is my cybersecurity risk manager, who helps lens it through more of a leadership capacity. And then it comes to our oversight committee for for consideration. And if it is a novel risk, meaning a risk that we haven't adjudicated on before, because we have this concept of precedence, which means if we've accepted that risk for a similar purpose, for a similar reason, uh, that doesn't need to go to oversight. I can sign off on that. Uh, but if it's a novel risk, that goes forward for discussion. Um, in the past five years, a lot of it was practicing and building up that bank of precedent. Um, and now a lot of the risks that are coming forward are really more associated, not with um, technical gaps, like the company doesn't make a Windows 10 version in that example, but financial gaps. Um, and really starting to expose the we can't really afford to fix everything, mm-hmm. what hospital can. Uh, but being able to have that engaged conversation and represent the security point of view with the enriched data from the business to be able to say, this is actually something we need to make room for. Or, um, okay, in order to, the, the classic example I use is uh, an MRI machine. MRI machines, half a million to a million bucks. The PC that runs it, 500 bucks. The $500 PC is not the funding issue. The the MRI is the, the funding issue. And then it, as a path to toleration, because you've got to have MRIs, right? It wouldn't be reasonable to say no no MRI, um, is to say, well, where is the capital funding for this project? How do you, how do you factor in the cybersecurity concern along with all the other concerns? Mm-hmm. Now that's CISO leaning more into being an institutional leader than a security wonk and learning how, in that case, imaging capital works inside an inpatient uh, facility. And that's interesting. Uh, it does take you further away from the nuts and bolts of security, but that I think you get more risk reduction the more you engage, you know, understanding how funds flow works. So that's a little bit about how that how that process may work. And then one of the key precedents for risk toleration is all risk toleration is temporary. Uh, so it goes on a risk registry. And just because we agreed, say, in 2021, uh, that that was an acceptable risk, things change by mm-hmm. 2023. Uh, so let's make sure we are refreshing and curating this so 
a decision made with a cohort based off data uh, from 2021 doesn't become uh, the rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so constantly refreshing. And we typically uh, only accept risks for about six months to a year. There, there are examples where we don't do that, but that's sort of our opening stakes. All right. Well, Jack, I would love to keep you on the phone for another two hours, but we're we're quickly out of time here. I'm going to ask you just a final open-ended question. What's your um, sort of best piece of advice, uh, with, you know, the experiences you've had, your best piece of advice for uh, a CISO, and let's make it very comparable at another comparably sized AMC with a research arm doing all the things you have to do. What's your best piece of advice for that individual? Uh, my, uh, my best piece of advice, and I've, I'm almost a broken record about it, is don't feel like you have to fill your teams out with the what I call tier 19 security engineers. Uh, academic medical centers are are great employers, but they're they're paying typically around to the 50 percent of percentage of the marketplace. So if you are approaching this by, I've got to have the most proven, certified, experienced people to protect the institution. Um, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Invest in people early in their career. Invest in people that have an interest in cybersecurity and supplement them with training and certification and continual education. But most importantly, exposure. If you're only exposing your people that are either uh, young in their career or looking at cybersecurity as a second career, if you only expose them to your processes, um, they're not going to go nearly as fast as embedding them in the work groups, getting them involved with the big projects, sending them into the wet labs to understand the difference between FPLC and an HPLC, to have them to talk to CMIOs. If you don't expose those people, uh, they're not going to grow. Uh, but most importantly, that's where you get most of the value. There aren't too many situations where you need a tier 19 engineer. They exist. Um, and there's solutions to that. What you really need is people who are going to learn the context and grow their career with you. There is a talent shortfall in cybersecurity. A lot of that, I think, is approach. Uh, so if you really invest in people entering in and growing them and having a solid coaching, peering, mentoring, continuing education program, I think the problem uh, really does a lot to solve itself. And that's that's a, that's a big piece of advice that I that I offer. Jack, that was a wonderful interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure. I had a great time. Thank you so much. Matter.